I think we all would, if we were honest, look back on our life and have some moments where we would wish we could turn back the clock and do things differently. Wish we could go back and change the course of our life because of one decision that we made. And for Peter, it was an incredible moment where he let his Lord down. The exciting part about it is, if you know your Bible, is it wasn't the end of Peter's story. We know because we're here celebrating Easter that Jesus didn't stay in the grave, but he rose from the dead. And Scripture records not very much, it doesn't record any of the conversation, but many scholars believe that the first conversation that Jesus had one-to-one was with Peter. And there's no record of what it was, but there was something after that moment where Peter was okay with everything that had happened. But we all can look back in our life and see periods of our decision-making process that, that we let the Lord down. We made decisions we're not proud of. We said things that we regret. We did things that we regret. And the great story about the Bible is that God is a redeeming God. That is why Easter is so powerful for us is that it doesn't matter what force is acting in our life, what decision we've made or where we've been or what we've done, there is nothing too hard for God. And Peter found that to be true in his own life. And there are three simple thoughts that I just wanted to share with you this morning for a little while together about Peter's journey that you and I hopefully can understand and um, think about in our own life and then we can process all that Peter went through together. And the first idea that we want to share is that failure can never be hidden from the Savior's, from the Savior's gaze. Failure can never be hidden from the Savior's gaze. I can't remember many times, and I've been going to church for about 22 years now, where I ever heard that I can think of someone stand up in a service or a praise time or a prayer time and tell the pastor, I have a sin that I love to confess before the congregation. Maybe you've been there and you've been blessed to be a part of that service, but normally our first reaction is not to come out and share publicly um, something that we've done or something that we've been involved in or regret that we have or a sin that we've given ourselves into. Uh, it's kind of like that first sin in the Garden of Eden Remember after Adam and Eve were caught eating the apple, what it, remember what they did? Where'd they go? They ran and hid, didn't they? And there's something in the human heart and life, and you can see it from our children at a young age. There's just instinct in our life to cover up what we have done wrong. But the fact of the matter is that nothing is ever hidden from the Savior's gaze. And there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, for Peter's sake, Jesus told him beforehand Jesus predicted that this failure would happen, and he told Peter in that upper room, he's like, you're, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter's like, well, there's no way I would do that. I'd be the last one to do that. And Jesus said, well, you think you know everything, but I'm the only one who does, and it's going to happen. God sees that before we even know it's coming. And he continues to love us despite the fact that he knows we're going to make those decisions that will let him down. Jesus saw Peter's disobedience as it happened. It says that after that rooster crowed, it was immediately that Peter looked and Jesus saw him. And there was something in that gaze and there was something in that look that Peter will remember for the rest of his life. And there's something in about the Holy Spirit that comes to us in those moments where we've walked away, where we've turned aside or we've made a bad decision or said something that we've regretted and we feel that look of the Spirit in our life, that touch of God upon our conscience. 
almost like, what have you done? And we know that he knows that we know that he knows. And where we go and what we do with that knowledge is such a big part of what God wants to do in our own life. And so it says in Luke chapter 22 that Jesus turned and looked at Peter even in that moment. And I think that there was more in his look than words would even need to have said. Well, we also know that God gazes upon our disobedience by the fact that he noticed Peter's failure after it happened. And what I mean by that, it says that after Jesus rose from the dead, he tells the women who come to see him, I want you to go tell my disciples, and I want you to tell Peter. And through the centuries, scholars have noticed that little tiny two-word phrase, and Peter, and made a really big deal about that. Because all the other disciples did not step out and claim that they would never deny him like Peter did. There's no record of the other disciples being in a place so close to Jesus in those moments. Peter was the only one to have the courage to be that close. Just like he was the only one to have the courage when Jesus was walking on the water in the storm, remember that? Peter was the only one who said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. It was Peter who ran into the tomb, and time after time after time, this man filled with passion and zeal and a desire to please God put himself out there on the line. And some of the times it was with a good ending, and some of the times like this, he was in such a difficult place that he couldn't handle the pressure of the moment. I've heard sermons that just thrash Peter for this denial of Jesus for the for those three times. And when that rooster crowed, I think that was all the thrashing that Peter needed in that one look from the Lord. But he was there with him when no one else was. He was in a dangerous place and he knew it. And it was those events and his emotions of that time that swirled out of control and he would have never have thought in any prior moment that he would have, it would have played out the way it did. But in the pressure of those moments, surrounded by those who were against him and against his Lord, he caved to the pressure and responded in a way that he would have never imagined he would have. And I think you and I this morning, if we were honest with ourselves and with God, can look back in our lives and maybe look back this morning and say there are some things in the pressure of the moment that I would have never imagined I would ever have said or have done. And maybe you see some of the repercussions of that and maybe you don't. But it is as if the Lord himself with his spirit is looking at you into your own heart and life. And that gaze from his spirit is more powerful than any words. Because his love for you remains after it's happened. We can never hide our failures from the Savior's gaze, as hard as we try, as far as we want, as we run, as much as we try to distance ourselves from the church and from God, he is still gazing upon that in our life. He doesn't want to overlook them, and he doesn't want us to overlook them as well. He wants us to confess our sins, not to cover them up. There's a story from the 30s and 40s in Ethiopia. It was a revival season, and food was scarce because of a war that was raging, the soldiers were taking everything that they could. There's one Ethiopian Christian man who left his family to find work just so they could survive. 
And he'd been gone for a year. And he came back after a year of work with $25 to his name when robbers caught him on the road and took every cent that he had. Angry, he shelved his Christian testimony and went to the house of a powerful witch doctor named Alamu to get him to put a curse on the robbers. And the power and the pressure of this moment, this man who loved God was desperate and went in a direction that he would have never imagined he would ever go. For years, this witch doctor had confined himself to darkness of his house, not bathing or cutting his hair. And as soon as this Christian man entered his house, he sensed a spiritual power was present. And before this desperate man could speak, the witch doctor demanded that he share the name of his God. Embarrassed at what he was about to do, the Christian man started to explain that he'd come to ask for a curse to put on the men who had robbed him. But the witch doctor didn't care why he was there. He only wanted to know about the power that had entered his house. Embarrassed and ashamed at what he was being almost in the middle of doing, he recovered his senses and told this witch doctor about Christ. When he told him that Jesus had been raised from the dead, he became very excited. For it was the answer he had looked for for so long. Someone greater than Satan. Someone greater than the darkness that had filled his house and filled his life. And in that very moment, he became a believer gave up all of his evil works and started a church and became the pastor of it. And this man thought he would go to a dark place where no one would know. And even in that moment, the Savior's gaze was upon him. And because of his redeeming power, God was able to turn his life around and the lives of those around him. Sometimes we think that the news of our failure will never get out, that no one will know, that will keep it under wraps, and as long as no one knows, everything's going to be all right. But the fact of the matter is, for each and every one of us this morning, God sees it before we do it. He hears it before we speak it. He's there as it happens, and he watches. And then he lingers alongside of us, even after it's happened, speaking to us, talking to us, trying to get us to turn around. So our failure will never escape the Savior's gaze. Secondly, this morning, our failure will never be able to separate us from the Savior's love. Our failure, our fallings, our disobedience will never separate us from the Savior's love. I mean, I don't know how much worse it can get than being the only disciple in the last moments of Jesus' life. And the last thing that you as a Savior hear from your last disciple who's close is that I don't know you. And to everyone around who's listening and and eagerly hearing from this maybe one disciple who's had the courage to say, I don't know him. I've never seen him before. I don't know anything about him. And then to go so bad as to curse in his desperation. It's hard to think of anyone having it worse than Peter did. In a sense, Jesus' last words from those who had claimed to love him was denial. I don't know that man. I have nothing to do with that man. It's no wonder that after Jesus saw him and after the rooster crowed, what did, remember Peter, he ran bitterly away and wept. He was broken 
because of where he had gone and what he had done. After all, he'd spent three years in the constant presence of the Savior of the world. He had heard Jesus teach. He had seen him work miracles. He was considered the inner circle of the inner circle. He was there when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration and he saw things with Jesus and he did things with Jesus and he experienced things with Jesus that very few people had ever seen or been a part of. And despite all that God had done in Peter and through Peter, in that moment, he had let his master down. And when Jesus needed someone the most, Peter was not there. Don't know how many of you went to a Good Friday service. I think most people know about Good Friday and that it's a time where we gather together and in many ways somberly consider the crucifixion. Many churches encourage their people to think in their own mind of the pain that Christ endured as he hung on the cross. On my Facebook feed yesterday, on Saturday, I heard Saturday called in many ways, Holy Saturday. But I read one post that said, what about Peter on Holy Saturday? This day in between the worst day of his life and the day that would soon become the best day of his life. That moment in between the time where he failed, and the time where he was filled with the knowledge of God's overcoming power. What did Peter do with that space in between where there was a lot of silence, a lot of time for self-reflection, and playing over and over again in his heart and mind the events of the night before? Did he sleep? Did he eat? Did he pace back and forth? Did he cry out to God? We don't know how it went down, but in those moments, in between the eternities, Peter was left with what was in him. And for you and I, we also were in between these eternities of our time where we walked away from God and the time where we realized that God has sent his son to forgive us, to redeem us, to give us hope of everlasting life. And what do we do with the moments in between, those holy Saturdays where we wait upon God and listen to his word and hopefully follow his voice? But the Bible teaches us that Christ's love is greater than than Peter's failure, greater than anyone's failure, because we all know John 3.16, God so loved every one of us that he gave his son. He's never stopped loving you. He's never stopped giving to you. Whatever day it is, whatever moment we're in, whatever place we find ourselves in, our moment is never too big for God. But may God be too big for our moment where we surrender ourselves to him and say, Lord, I don't want to go like this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. For Peter, in those moments where he went and wept bitterly to God, I cannot carry this guilt anymore. I am sorry. Please forgive me and Give me the strength to live up to my claims of following you with all that I am. 
And in those moments, in God's own special way, he dealt with Peter intimately, personally, powerfully, as they walked together. John chapter 21 records this private meeting that Peter and Jesus had. We don't know what was said. All we know is that Peter was different from that moment on. And that's the way you and I are to deal with God. Personally, heart to heart, voice to voice, spirit to spirit. No one can make you do it. No one can force you to do it. No one can trick you into doing it. It is the Lord speaking to the heart and then the heart following God wherever he would lead us to go. It doesn't have to be a public thing. It doesn't have to be announced to the church the following Sunday. All it has to be is our willingness to listen to the voice of God and obey, do whatever he's asking us to do. don't know if you've ever struggled with this in your own life, but there have been times in mine where I've messed up, I've gone and done something that I never intended to do, and so I say, all right, Lord, or to myself, or maybe the devil says it to me, I don't know, uh, what are the things I need to do to make this better? You know, we, we get tricked into thinking that life is a, a balancing scale. And if we go to church enough times, then it kind of evens out. Or, or we, we're kinder to people than we were before this happened, that the scale kind of evens out, or we, or we give to, to charities or to the church and the scale evens out. And, and so many times it becomes about what we do or what we've done, and, and so it becomes all up to us to find peace for where we've gone wrong. And there's no record of Jesus ever talking to Peter about what he had to do. He just wanted to talk to Peter about where he'd been. And then we see this morning together that where God wants him to go. Because our failure does never exclude us from the risen Savior's service. If it was a penance system that God had instilled, then Peter would have never made it. There was no going back from those words except for God to take him forward. And sometimes we spend our entire lifetime looking back on those words or those actions or those moments that we wish we'd never been a part of and we have never been allowed by God, we've never allowed God to take us forward because we're trapped in the past. And the power of Peter's story is that as hard as he fell and as desperate of those moments that he was, God intended to use it for Peter so that his future was far different than his past. I don't know if the devil ever comes to you like he comes to me, but he comes around and he pretends that he's putting his arm around, but really he's sticking a knife in there somewhere. But he says, you know, you're never going to be able to do this because of what you did back then. Did the devil ever say that to you? He brings something that you haven't thought of in years, maybe something you've been trying not to think of for years. Or maybe it fills your heart night and day. He says, you're never going to have a future with God. You're never going to get victory over this because remember what you did back then? If Jesus had any interest in doing that in our life, then he would have took Peter aside and said, you know, I had said previously that you're going to be the rock upon what this church is based, but, but you messed up big time, and so we're turning this over to somebody else. But there's no, that's not what Jesus did, is it? 
Jesus said, hey, buddy, it's going to be all right. In fact, it says that a few days after this, the disciples are out on the water fishing, and they can't catch anything. And Jesus says, hey, throw your nets on the other side. If you're ever out fishing and Jesus, and Jesus tells you to cast over there, I definitely do it. We'll see how that goes. But he spoke to them. And he says, if you want it to go differently, my voice. And there are so many fish that they, it almost tears the net. And to the shore and Jesus meal for them. And despite all the, the, the moments those disciples had ran and hid for their life, all the ways that they let Jesus down, he still had a plan for them. He still had things that need done. There's a church to build. And he needed his guys to be a part of it. And nowhere in my Bible does it talk about Jesus Sitting Thomas down, he's like, you know that doubting brother? You got to get rid of that, dude. I mean, seriously, how could you do that to me? Or to Matthew, who was, you know, probably the most despised, except for, you know, Judas eventually. Cheated everybody. Jesus didn't go to Matthew and say, hey, Matthew, you know, you spent 30 years of your life shafting everybody, so you're just going to scrape floors for the rest of your ministry. He had a plan for each and every one of them to be a part of this incredible movement called the Christian church. And Peter, just a few times after this, would preach to a crowd of 3,000 or more, and they gave their hearts to the Lord. And even though Peter had a past, and Jesus saw him in those moments, he had a future for him filled with purpose and passion Stories told of a young executive at IBM years ago. They were involved in a risky venture, and he was the chief officer of that, and in a moment's time, lost $10 million for that company. And the boss man called him in, and he's all nervous. He's like, I'm, I'm doomed, aren't I? I guess you want my resignation, right? And the boss said, you can't be serious. We just spent $10 million educating you. There's no way we're letting you go now. And the Bible is abundantly clear that God was teaching Peter even through these moments. If you turn in your Bible to different references throughout all this way, in Mark chapter 14, Peter said, because of his pride, I will never fail away. And he did, but yet later in 1 Peter, he said, close yourselves with humility toward one another. God was teaching Peter, even through his failure, to be more like him. In the garden, Peter had failed to watch and pray with those brothers around him. But later in 1 Peter chapter 4, he said, Be of sound judgment and be sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. Peter hastily tried to defend Jesus by cutting off the servant's ear. But later he would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, If you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it. For this finds favor with God. In those moments around the trial of Jesus, when those three individuals questioned him and he denied it so strongly, later in 1 Peter chapter 3, he would write these words Always be ready to give an answer for everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And billions of Christians through the years have gained through Peter's words that were born in moments of failure.
I say that this morning to say there is hope for those who have failed. Not to wallow in our failures, but that God wants to redeem them and to teach us to work through them so that he can work in the lives of others. God also uses our failures to teach others through us. As Jesus gathered Peter later on, he would talk to him, and it was almost like the opposite. He asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know I love you. He asked him again, Peter, do you love me? And he said, Lord, do you love me? And it's funny the parallels between this because Jesus asked him a third time, and just like the third time they asked him before the crucifixion, the third time, Peter, do you love me? And he gets upset. He's like, you know all things. You know that I love you. And what was Jesus' next words? You're a failure, a mess up? No, he said, go and take care of your brothers. Go and take care of the church. Go and bless them and use them. Be used by me to change those around you. It wasn't going to be much longer until Peter preached after Pentecost. And you know, the people that were in that crowd were the same people that had heard him deny Jesus. The same ruggle muffins were there days later when Peter had had the power of the Holy Spirit fill his life. But something had happened to him. Something had changed him, and there was no going back when God does a work in your heart and in your life. And it was only by God's power and strength that he was able to overcome those moments of failure, to be used to start a church that no power on earth could ever destroy. That's what God wants to do in your heart and mine as we turn our lives over to him. doesn't matter where we've been. doesn't matter what we've done. All that matters is that we're honest with God. We stop running from these things. We confess them to the Lord, and he makes all things new. If you've been with us the last few Sundays, we've been uh, talking, preaching on the idea of March Madness. And I know the championship game is coming soon. I really wanted Loyola Chicago to win, but it didn't quite happen uh, but we've been talking about how God works through our, through our adversity. We've been talking about how God has used us in amazing places and ways. And we've been, I've enjoyed the sports references that we've been able to share together, and it's been fun. So I'm going to close our time together with another such reference in the realm of football, though not on basketball. Going back to 1929, who here was alive in 1929? Do you have anyone here, here 1929? We got, we got a couple. All right, Lord bless you. Maybe, I don't know if you remember this story or not, but it was Georgia Tech playing the University of California in the Rose Bowl, New Year's Day, 1929. Roy Regals recovered a fumble for California, but somehow became confused and ran 65 yards in the wrong direction. And one of his teammates in desperation ran after him and tackled him just before he scored a touchdown for the opposing team. When they tried to punt shortly after, Georgia Tech blocked the kick and scored a safety, which ended up being the margin of victory in that game. But that strange play where he ran the wrong direction came at the end of the first half. And we've been talking together about those moments in our life where everything hinges on our own decisions. So everyone who was watching in the locker room in halftime says, what on earth will coach say? to this man before he will get a play. We'll even be on the field. We'll even let him out of the locker room. The discouraged, defeated player put a blanket around his shoulders, sat down in a corner by himself, and cried like a baby. 
Normally their coach would have a lot to say during halftime, but that day Coach Price was silent. No doubt trying to figure out what he was going to do with his player and his team. After a while in silence, the timekeeper came in and announced they had three minutes left before time would begin to start the second half. Coach took a deep breath and looked up at his team and said, Men, the same team that played in the first half is going to start the second. And everyone got up and started falling out of the locker room except Regals. He didn't budge. The coach looked back and called to him again, All right, everyone out on the field. And he wouldn't move. The coach went over to where the defeater player was sitting and said, Roy, didn't you hear me? The same team that played in the first half is going to play in the second. His face wet with tears. He looked up and said, Coach, I can't do it to save my life. I have ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I cannot go out and face the crowd in that stadium to save my life. And the coach came just like Jesus does to us, and he put his arm on Rieger Soldier, and he said, get up and go on back out there. The game is only half over. The game is only half over. And he went back out there. And those players on the other team would later say that no, they had never seen a man play football like Roy played in the second half. And our failures may not have been like Peter's in the crowd of a few dozen or like Roy's in the crowd of tens of thousands. But there can be times in our life where we look back and say, I can never go on from that place. I can never go on from that moment. I, to save my life, I will be trapped here for the rest of my days. And God would say to you, no. That is why Jesus died on the cross and why I brought him back from the dead again so that all people could have hope that there's nothing in your past that is too hard for God to cure. There's nothing in the past that God cannot forgive. There's nothing in the past that can keep you from tomorrow as long as you place your faith and your trust and the God who loves you so much. Paul would write to a young pastor years later by the name of Timothy, and he would say these words to this man. It is a trustworthy statement deserving acceptance by everyone that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And I wonder if Paul and Peter ever had an argument of who had let the Lord down more. Paul would argue that he was the chief of sinners. Paul was a man who had killed Christians. You think your past is dark. Think about his. He was literally trying to destroy the church. House by house he would go. But as he went along his way on that road, God met him. He saw that all that Paul had done. He saw all that Paul was doing. But in God's providence, God saw all that Paul could be. And that's what God sees in each and every one of us. He sees all that we've been and all that we are and all that we could ever be. And he died to make it happen. We're going to ask us now to come and have communion together. We celebrate this Easter morning 